Well, this morning, if you're a guest with us, we just work our way through Scripture. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 23. And so I'm going to read that passage to you, and we have a custom here that when we read God's Word, we encourage everyone to stand in honor of God's Word. So would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? Some people say that's old-fashioned, but if that's old-fashioned, good. <laughs> I'm old-fashioned. 2 Corinthians 1 from verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 11. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too, severe, to, too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. To understand what this passage is about, we need to go back a little and explain the, the setting of what took place. Sometime between the letter of the first Corinthians and this, what we call the second letter, which is actually the third letter, we've lost a letter in between there. And this is what Paul's referring to about writing them. And we call it the severe letter or the harsh letter. There was this letter in between where Paul was um, confronting um, immorality in the church. And he was probably, we don't know because we don't have the letter, he was probably laying out scripturally what was wrong and what needed to take place. And he had, after the first letter of the Corinthians, he'd made a trip to Corinth. Now, at the end of the first letter, he said, I'm gonna go to Macedonia first and then I'm gonna come winter with you. But something in him caused him to change his plans which we know was the Holy Spirit. And so he went to them before he went to Macedonia, and there was some kind of confrontation that took place. Clues in this letter indicate that, that there was a lot of friction between Paul and some of the members of the church, and that it was so intense that he ended up just walking away, leaving. He couldn't resolve it. So instead, he wrote that, that letter uh, and put off revisiting them as he said he originally planned to do after Macedonia. Verse 23 again, 
He writes, but I call God to witness against me. Um, this is like a sacred vow. There's, you see it in the Old Testament. It's a lot more serious than the vows that we make today. It's very, very binding. It's like saying, if, uh, if, I, don't, if, this is, if I don't keep the word that I'm about to say now, may God judge me. That's pretty severe. So he's saying, this is sincerely from my heart, as, as sincerely as I can, I can make this. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. This is, is a declaration of the heart of true pastors. They do have God-given authority, but they're not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, amen? And they have to listen to him and do as he leads. As an apostle, Paul had the right to discipline them. He could have just come in and said, you know, um, you're not being obedient. All of you are excommunicated. But that's, that wasn't the way God operated in this situation. He has a Lord over him. He serves at his leading. Godly leaders are not dictators. They are not CEOs. They are humble servants who seek the good of those that they minister to, sometimes with warnings, but always with the heart of love for the flock that they serve. Their goal is to see each person find their calling in the Lord and to find their place in serving one another so that the body can be built up. Paul expressed this sentiment of working with them for their joy. When we learn of who we are in Christ and the joy of letting him work through our lives to build one another up, we experience the joy of the Lord. It's that finding that, um, that purpose for which you were created and when you sense that God's working through you, there's nothing more joyful, especially when you see God touch that life that he's ministering to through you. Unshakable inner joy comes from knowing the love of God and letting his Holy Spirit direct our lives. If you want that joy that the scripture talks about, that you see on some people's faces, it's this is how to get it. It comes from knowing the love of God and letting the Holy Spirit work through your life. Instead of arguing with that person, that immoral person in the church of Corinth, and those who took his side, apparently there were some who sided with him, he wrote this painful letter, which of course is lost to history. And it probably explained the theological basis for uh, dealing with that sin and how it had to be dealt with. Verse one says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I've pained? So Paul trusted the letter would be more likely to get through, to, to speak to their hearts, to let them come to the right conclusion that God was trying to lead them to, rather than to be there in person and face those face-to-face -face arguments and criticism. Sometimes just to lay out the fact in writing avoids the back and forth of that face-to-face -face that, can, that can end up being painful for everyone involved. 
verses 3 and 4. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So the letter was going to prepare the way for a later visit that instead of being contentious would end up being joyful. Paul desires to share the joy of the Lord with them and for them to experience his joy. But to experience the joy in unity, sin had to be dealt with first. And so with many tears, Paul wrote this painful letter, not out of de desire to win an argument, but rather to get the church to see God's heart in the situation that he was writing about. Sometimes discipline and firm words can be more of an expression of love than just trying to get along. I'm sure it was also bathed in prayer. Refusing to speak the truth because you just want to get along can indicate your love for the person is shallow. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the profane, prof I'm sorry, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, if you really love someone, you're going to tell them the truth, even if it hurts. But an enemy will flatter you to any extreme to get you on their side. Verse 5, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too, too severely, to all of you. Paul tactfully doesn't mention the name of the offender or what the offense was. We, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But once the issue was resolved, there's no need to keep bringing it up, the person's name and what happened. But this leaves us wondering um, just what it is that he's addressing here. And if we don't know the situation, it's a little difficult to apply it to our lives. Now, I always, all my life reading the letter to Corinthians, I always assumed it was the immoral brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But then I started reading newer commentaries, and they were saying things like, well, how could Paul forgive immorality? Only God can forgive immorality. And here in this passage, Paul forgives the person for whatever the situation was, perhaps a, a personal offense towards Paul. But we can't forgive people who've sinned against God. We can only forgive people who've sinned against us. However, there is a scenario that we can imagine where there may have been multiple offenses by the same person. It very well may be, and I believe it is, that person in 1 Corinthians 5 um, and his immoral situation with his, his stepmother. But if Paul's surprise visit found the church had done nothing, when he'd asked them to expel that immoral man from the congregation, maybe because of his standing in the church, maybe the church met in his house, or maybe he was one of the big benefactors of the church. Paul may have confronted the man himself, 
And that may have brought what sounds like later in the letter a very um, a confrontational experience where the person or the people in that congregation belittled Paul. They'd already heard from false teachers that, that Paul didn't, ignored the law because Paul didn't teach the law. He taught grace and salvation is, is not only by grace, but you also have to keep the laws of Moses. And so they tried to belittle Paul who, who preached grace. It may be that, that the man stood up to Paul in an offensive way, insulting him. You know, we, Paul mentioned some of the things, some of the insults he's heard about himself. And it may be against his authority as well. The fact that Paul had to write that now missing letter that was quite harsh seems to point toward the congregation shrinking back when this confrontation took place and not taking either side, or maybe even some taking the side of the offender saying, well, God's gracious, we should just forgive him. Paul's letter avoided the tension of that face-to-face -face and must have laid out exactly what needed to be done from scripture, writing in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved. So some people suggest that, well, this is a once and for all excommunication. But all throughout the letters to the Corinthians, we see Paul arguing for restoration and salvation of the man. The concept is that the body of believers has a, a supernatural protection. Because we're in fellowship with one another, because we worship together, there's some kind of supernatural protection that God places over his people. And to be put out into the world means Satan will have the opportunity uh, to discipline them, to deal with them, to afflict them. And that hopefully when that happens, the person will realize what they've lost by being a part of the congregation and come back in repentance and be restored. I believe Paul's assuming the man is born again despite his compromises and insults and that he's going to be, therefore, he's going to be miserable out in the world. Verse 5 tells us that Paul did, didn't take it personally. That's difficult when someone gets in our face and insults us, isn't it? If you've ever had somebody just get in your face and tell you how, what a terrible person you are, you can, you can see the grace of God expressed through Paul here in this passage. Instead, he knew the pain that the church experienced, both in not standing up for him and the effect of, that this man's behavior had on the reputation of the church in the community. Um, the scripture says this was some an act that even the pagans would blush at. This sin was a sin against God, but also a sin against his fellow believers because we all affect one another. The disunity that his argument brought, the, the, the bad testimony to the community, the conflict within the church was all a sin against the church as well. None of us is an island unto himself. We elevate the holiness of the body of believers that we worship with, or we sully it with our compromises. 
I think that's an important point that's been lost in the church today. When the body of believers is truly a body of believers, not just a club or uh, a place to get together once a week, but brothers and sisters in Christ, our life and the way we live it affects the whole congregation. Brazen sin in the church community that's not dealt with can be like a spiritual contagion. We should consider how we affect those that we worship with when we entertain compromising with sin. It's not only a serious matter for oneself, but for the whole church. You remember when the Israelites came into the promised land, they had that wonderful victory at Jericho, and then there's this little city. They said, oh, it's just a little one. We can just send a few troops out. And so they sent the, the little army out, and they were defeated. I can't remember how many died. I think 16 of the soldiers died as they were chased off by the army from this little town of Ai. And Moses got on his face and sought the Lord, and the Lord said, there's sin in the camp. One person, just one person's sin caused the army of Israel to be defeated. And I think it's a picture for us to say we all affect one another. Our compromises affect the body of believers that we worship with. Verse 6 says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So we can see Paul's heart here for reconciliation, not retribution. This reveals Paul's refusal to be offended and the grace he has even for those who, those who oppose him. We all need to refuse to be offended. I hope you'll all take that with you. If you don't write anything in your notes, say believers should refuse to be offended. Sometimes offenses come from misunderstanding. And when we're offended, one of the first things we should do is ask the person to clarify. Do you mean, did I hear you correctly? Why are you saying that? What do you mean by that? And put it in your own words and see if you really understand what they're saying. In that case, uh, if we didn't do anything wrong, if it's from a, just from a misunderstanding, we just need that clarification. But sometimes it's intentional. And that requires us to go to the Lord. A uh, good illustration in scripture was King David when he was fleeing uh, from, from his palace and fleeing from the rebellion by his son Absalom. He, there was a man um, connected with Saul's family who sat up on the hilltop and was yelling at him, you're cursed, you dog, this is God's judgment on you. And one of Saul's warriors said, let me go take his head off. And David said, no, this may be, this may be God speaking to me, telling me that I've done wrong. He knew back, you know, he, he understood how he had Uriah murdered. He understand how he stole his wife. And he thought, perhaps this is God's judgment and dealing with me. So he was examining his heart to see if, the offense may have been God allowing it. So you examine your heart, and if you examine your heart and you find nothing wrong, what do you do? You go back and tell the guy off. 
No. No. You forgive, right? Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive if you want to be forgiven. I don't know about you, but I want to be forgiven. So if you want to be forgiven, what you sow, you will also reap. If you sow unforgiveness, you will reap unforgiveness. So sow that forgiveness to, towards that person. Be gracious toward them and pray for them. I've, the, the best thing you can do to, to when, when you're offended by someone, especially when it's very severe, and you don't, can't find a reason in your heart for that offense, the best way to keep it from playing in your head, do you know what I mean? It plays in your head when somebody really gets in your face. It plays over and over, and it's hard to get it out of your mind. The best way to get it out of your mind is to pray for that person. Ask God for his heart for that person because God loves that person, and he wants to see them come to salvation, or if he's saved, to restore him. Pray for them. I know it's not easy. But if we are walking in the spirit, we can choose to declare that we've forgiven the person and choose to love them by the power of the Holy Spirit because he loves them. Now, the world would say that's defeat. You're just giving in. You're giving in to defeat. I call it victory. I call it freedom in the spirit. So when Paul says this punishment by the majority, we can assume that there is a minority who disagree. Now, not all commentators believe. Some, some believe and point to some uh, other scripture that when this terminology is used, it may mean everybody. But it can also mean that there was a minority that didn't agree with the punishment. Maybe his family, maybe the, the house church that he fellowshiped with. But in chapter 2, verse 3, he told them he's sure that all of them will share his joy. He didn't say, except for those of you who sided with the man. <laughs> no, he has faith for the entire Corinth congregation, even the ones who insulted him, even the ones who belittled him. He has faith for them all. I think that speaks powerfully to us. Paul chose to forgive all who were against him. And we should too. Some people paint Paul out as this hard, unbending man who's tough and he's always ready to argue and win. But here we see his concern for the entire church, even a wayward individual and those who sided with him and who probably made personal attacks on his authority. Isolating this man from fellowship seems to have, have actually brought him to repentance and helped him acknowledge the authority in the church. Your church elders are tasked with protecting the flock as shepherds. This means they have to make some decisions for the good of the whole. It's a difficult balance to tolerate the slow progress and stumbling of new believers while at the same time protecting the flock. There are times when Confidentiality will help young believers to continue in the faith. And there are times when the congregation must know of a rebellion that may lead others astray. So brethren, pray for us, please. Would you do that? Do I hear amen? Thank you. Verse seven. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him that he may be overwhelmed by excessive 
or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Paul instructs them not only to forgive the man for the damage he had done to the church, but also to comfort him and reaffirm their love for him. Paul knows the difference between conviction and condemnation. As he writes in verse 11, we're not ignorant of Satan's designs. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He wants us to feel so condemned that we get depressed and become useless to the cause of Christ. Remember the grief that drove Judas to, su to suicide. Therefore, we must reaffirm our love to the repentant person. This is the grace the church should always have towards repentant sinners, for it's the grace that God has for us. Paul's asking us to act toward others like Jesus does toward us. At the same time, we should be aware of the man or woman's weakness for that same reason. We're not ignorant of the enemy's schemes. There was a time in Sedona when a prominent pastor had an affair with a woman who he'd been counseling. And after the pastor was removed, the woman came back to the church, repentant, and the congregation welcomed her repentance and did as Paul instructs here. So far, so good. But they didn't set any boundaries on her relationship with the new pastor to avoid the same problem from reoccurring and the offense was repeated. Then she moved on to another ministry in the Verde Valley and took down the leader of that ministry. All that damage was done to the church and the ministry and the families involved because the grace was extended without any boundaries. Forgive, comfort, confirm your love for those who repent from blatant sin, but don't give Satan an opportunity to repeat the damage. A truly repentant heart will appreciate the boundaries. They'll recognize they're there for their good. Most churches in the USA, I would, I would guess the vast majority, do not practice church discipline. The balance between being overly harsh and that of being too gracious without seeing repentance it's really, is very difficult. There's also the fear in our culture today of church of litigation against the church. Public discipline of this extreme is only necessary when the sin is blatant and there's no repentance. If it's not dealt with, some congregants may assume that it's not so serious and end up in the same sin. Elders must prayerfully deal with the situation by approaching the one who's caught in sin first, one-on-one. -on -one. In most cases, it's resolved there. Either the person will repent or they leave so they don't have to face the congregation. Unfortunately, in our culture today, they just move down the street to another church that doesn't condemn sin. On a rare occasion, an unrepentant sinner will go on the attack like this person apparently did in Corinth. And then things get ugly. Verse 9, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
The reason Paul wrote, instead, instead of coming in person, uh, was to lay out for them what God requires us and see if they would be obedient, not to him, but to God. He's not asking them to be obedient to himself. It was a test to see if they were willing to submit to God's directions. Every time we read the scripture, we have a similar test. We see areas in our lives that need to change, attitudes that need to be corrected, patterns that need to be redirected, Will we be obedient in everything? Paul gives several criteria in this letter of 2 Corinthians for conforming to Christian character. It reveals itself when they discipline wrongdoers and forgive them after they repent. Then further on in the letter, when they maintain the joy of Christian faith in the midst of afflictions, that's chapter 8, verse 2. When they demonstrate love, chapter 8, verse 8, and respond with generosity to those who are in need, chapter 9, verse 13, and when they do what is right, chapter 13, 5 to 7. But the primary characteristic of conforming to the character of Christ is being obedient in everything. Paul does not say to whom they are obedient exactly here, but in chapter 10, 5 to 6, he makes it clear that they must be obedient to Christ. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, we have to know that the word if is not in the Greek text. Most translations add it because it seems to make more sense. But it makes the clause conditional, which it may not be. Paul forgives whoever the body of Corinth forgives. They forgive the man for misrepresenting them to the city, for the pain he caused them, for the division he created. This forgiveness from the community would be a response to true repentance, which brings the forgiveness of God. When God has forgiven someone, we have no right to hold the sin against them. Should we accept this ESV translation using if, then we should know that the phrase, if I have forgiven anything, can also be translated if there was anything to forgive. And if that's the case, Paul can't be referring to the incestual situation as the need for forgiveness would be certain he'd be referring to the disrespect shown him by the offending person who was trying to justify his sin. By writing in this way, Paul shows that he doesn't hold a grudge. You know, and as I was thinking about this verse this morning, that passage from his previous letter, 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. That is a powerful verse because it's so contrary to our human nature. We wanna keep a record of the wrongs, amen? That guy wronged me this time, and, that, and I remember when he, you know, we got a whole list of things against certain people. By writing in this way, he's showing he doesn't hold a grudge, that he's always ready to forgive. He doesn't lord his position as an apostle over people and demand they apologize to him. Don't you know who I am? I'm the great apostle Paul. 
His goal for the church is to grow up spiritually and deal with sin without him having to be involved, while at the same time being ready to restore the repentant person. And in the presence of Christ literally means in the face of Christ, with Christ looking on. In other words, he's, he's there looking on in approval when we confront sin and see repentance and then restoration. Paul's desire is that he and the offender's relationship be restored, that the offender and the church be restored to one another and the church have a renewed relationship with himself. And our last verse, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. It's to keep Satan from outwitting us. Now that word also means rob, from robbing us or exploit from exploiting us or gaining an advantage over us. Jesus' high priestly prayer was that we might be one as he and the Father are one. He's praying for our unity because that demonstrates love and peace to the world. But if we're unloving, if we're unforgiving, and speaking behind one another's backs, the world sees nothing different in us. We close ourselves off to the blessings of God and our old nature reigns, and we exhibit the fruits of the flesh rather than the fruits of the spirit. Satan wins, mankind loses. That's the design of Satan. Paul has presented a balance of how to deal with blatant sin in the church. The person who's being rebellious is firmly dealt with. The congregation knows that behavior will not be tolerated. If there's no repentance, the person is put out of fellowship. And as he or she experiences what it's like in the world without the love and encouragement of God's family and the word, they start to realize what they left behind. The consequences of sin confronts them. Sin is never as wonderful or fulfilling as our imagination makes it out to be. It is always temporary and leaving you wanting more. The goal should always be to bring them to repentance and restoration. And then Satan loses, the church wins, God's will is done as the person is restored and matured. But if there's no forgiveness and the church is unloving towards the repentant sinner, if they keep reminding him of his past sin, he or she will eventually find they're no better off in the church. The person lives in condemnation, whether in the church or in the world, and they become fruitless and hopeless. And Satan wins and the church loses. And that's the goal of Satan. Now I brought up one another scenario, which isn't here in this passage, where grace is too readily given and the person does more damage in the church, drawing more people into sin. And that too is Satan's design. Perhaps that's his most favorable outcome. Satan rejoices, the people of God are grieved. We should not put people in situations that will tempt them in areas where they've fallen in the past. It's not because we don't have faith in their repentance or what God can do in them, but because we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Past weaknesses can tempt us again. That's the one place we need to be most on guard. But there's something else here that we need to be reminded of in the American church. If we don't have the love and unity 
that feels like family, putting a person out of the church will mean nothing to them. There'll be no longing to return. There's nothing for them to miss. They can hear a good sermon on the web if that's all they want. Let us not only be aware of Satan's devices, but let us also be aware of how Christ wants us to be one in him. That's where we find the balance of protecting one another, but also eager to restore those who fall, while guarding against areas in which the enemy may attack. We find that oneness in smaller groups or taking time to fellowship with people in the church outside of our regular times together. Some of you employ those who need church work in the church and are getting to know them that way. Share your testimony with someone you don't know and ask to hear their journey of faith. Share it with the whole church in a call to worship. You know, you're always invited to come and share your testimony, provided it's not longer than 15 minutes. <laughs> I have found that hearing the journey that God has guided others through unites my heart with them because I can relate to them, because our journeys are all similar in some ways. I found that hearing that, that journey just draws us together. We're all unique. I was in a men's group once and we started out by each person. We spent a couple actual meetings, maybe three meetings, just sharing our testimonies. And it really binded us together. We're all unique, but we all share the most important things in our lives our relationship with Jesus, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Our oneness in the, in the love of Christ will help us defeat the enemy's schemes. That love and unity for which Christ prayed for us will keep Satan from robbing us of our peace and joy. It will keep him from exploiting us to sideline fellow believers. And it will keep him from taking advantage of us in our weak moments to derail the work of God in our midst. So I close with this verse, because I think it sums it up. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? Let's stand and sing together.